Hi there. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm your host, Carla Nappi. I just spoke with Amy Stanley about her book, Selling Women, Prostitution, Markets, and the Household in Early Modern Japan. And this is a great book that just came out this year, 2012, with the University of California Press. Now, it was really a pleasure to talk with Amy about this book, and it was also sincerely and truly a pleasure to read the book. This is one of those books that is so elegantly and clearly written and argued that it hits that sweet spot that makes it understandable, compelling, surprising in productive ways, and really fluid to follow for not just specialists in the field, but also for readers from other fields, for interested non-academic readers, and for students at all levels. It's really a very powerful um, and very successful book that way. Now, this is a book that looks at the sort of changing spaces and changing geographies of prostitution in Tokugawa, Japan. And by spaces and geographies, I mean both physical, administrative, institutional, and also sort of spaces of the page, spaces of the household. It's a book that not just um, presents a set of very interesting arguments, but also I think very effectively urges us to rethink some basic categories and basic concepts that we may think we understand, and that this really interesting set of case studies uh, is enough to compel us, I think, to, to rethink. And these are institutions and concepts like marriage, like prostitution, um, and many others aside from that. We had a great time talking. It was really a pleasure, um, and I hope you enjoy. Hi, Amy. Hi. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me on. So for listeners out there, we're here today to talk with Amy Stanley about her really wonderful new book, Selling Women, Prostitution, Markets, and the Household in Early Modern Japan. Now this is, um, Amy and I were talking a little bit before this, and I've already mentioned this to her, but I'm going to mention this to all of you listening. This is one of the most elegantly written books that I've read in a long time. It's very elegantly argued, and it's a work that not only puts forth a very compelling, I think, argument about early modern Japan, but it also helps us and encourages us to rethink relationships in general between many things, but especially, for example, work, space, and women in history. So it's tremendously enjoyable to read, very productive to read, and thanks again, Amy, for making time to talk with us about it today. Oh, thank you. That's very nice to hear. Oh, it's true. All true, all true. So, Amy, could you start us off by saying a little bit about your background? What brought you to this topic and to this field? Um, Well, what brought me to the field um, of Japanese history in general was um, experiences I had really early in life. Um, My father was um, a scientist at the National Institutes of Health in the 1980s, and he had a lot of postdocs come from Japan. And I remember, even as a kid, being really fascinated um, hearing about their lives in Japan, which seemed to me this you know, extremely far off um, and fascinating place. And so when I went to college, um, I had the opportunity to take Japanese language for the first time. Um, and because I'd always been interested in history in general, just kind of fell into um, Japanese history as a um, topic of study. Um, and then when I got to graduate school, this book, like many first books, started off as a dissertation. Um, I knew that I was interested in women, but like a lot of early graduate students, um, my ability to read documents was really constrained by my linguistic ability. And 
I was still learning how to read handwritten documents. Um, I was still learning the kind of form of Japanese that was commonly used during the Tokugawa period. And the easiest thing for me to read at the time was um, legal sources because they were relatively easy to follow and formulaic and because they were published and compiled. Um, so the types of women who come up in legal sources tended to be either prostitutes or adulteresses. <laughs> because those were the types of women who were punished. Um, and so it turned out in college, I'd written my BA thesis on adultery. And so um, as a graduate student, I decided to turn to prostitution. Mm. That's, um, that's and Oh, go on. I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Um, so I was just going to say that. Um, so I, I started reading all this um, stuff about prostitution in criminal records and then turned to the secondary literature on prostitution um, in Tokugawa, Japan. And it's a really, it's a robust literature and it tends to be from the viewpoint of cultural history um, because the so-called pleasure quarter, which I always put in quotation marks, um, that is enclosed brothel districts um, in most famously Yoshiwara and Edo were sites of cultural production. And I started to realize that the image of prostitution that I was seeing in the secondary literature really didn't match up with what I was seeing in the legal records, and that became the impetus to explore this topic further. Mm. Now, this is great to hear, and it's really interesting that there was seemingly such a fluid kind of movement, and it really makes sense as you describe your progression from your undergraduate work to the graduate work. And of course, this also progressed into this wonderful book um, that we have uh, that we're talking about today, and this is one of the the kinds of transformations that is um, particularly difficult for a lot of uh, people, at least in conceptually when they're graduate students, and then certainly when a lot of us are junior professors. Can you talk a little bit about what that transformation was like for you? Were there any major changes or sort of major things that you had to rethink, major restructure, uh, restructural issues, or was it fairly smooth or somewhere in between? It was a major transformation. Um, I always say to my colleagues that um, a lot of times people talk about, you know, polishing a dissertation or tinkering with it. Um, I really felt like I was performing surgery. That I would <laughs> take out these chapters and just kind of rip them open and be just up to my elbows and like intestines um, trying to, and there was always this kind of really dramatic feeling of, oh my God, am I going to lose the entire chapter? Um, so yes, it was a very difficult um, and emotionally um, involved process for me. Uh, there was a lot of stuff that I ended up changing um, and completely restructuring. Um, a lot of that was due to really good advice that I got. Um, one of the really terrible things that happened um, for me for the, from the transition from graduate school to um, being an assistant professor is that my dissertation advisor, Hal Belitho, got really ill and had to resign. He eventually, he died a few years ago. Um, and so with that, I was really in many ways adrift. Um, and so what I did is I sent the dissertation to two really great scholars in my field, um, and they very generously offered to read it and gave me all sorts of comments, which was wonderful. And also um, my senior colleagues here at Northwestern, um, especially Laura Hine, who's in modern Japanese history, read it and gave me feedback. And um, this started to give me a sense of what I needed to change and um, which direction I might want to go in. Um, 
the hardest thing, well, there are two things that I really needed to change. One was that because of the way my dissertation was structured, which was that every chapter addressed a different place on the Japanese archipelago, I had a very good sense of change over space, but I was lacking the kind of overall arc, the change over time. And that is something that I had to get clear in my own mind. And that I also had to kind of deal with the problem of how to keep moving from place to place and also um, bring the reader along on this journey from the 17th century to the mid 19th century. Um, so that was the first thing is reconceptualizing the, reconceptualizing the argument in terms of change over time. Um, the second um, was that I really had to think about some of the issues that had confronted me when I was giving talks to history departments on the job market um, that hadn't really occurred to me as much when I was in an East Asian languages and civilizations context. And the main issue there was the problem of stigmatization of prostitutes. Mm-hmm. Because I had come from a field in which I kind of took it for granted that promiscuity, that is, a woman having sex with multiple men, um, was not a major object of condemnation, as long as the woman was a commoner, not a samurai. There were, there were status issues there, too. Um, but this is something that people from European and American history found really fascinating. And they kept asking me why I wasn't talking more about that, about promiscuity and stigma. Um, and I had just been kind of treating prostitutes prostitution as an economic activity without really getting into those issues. And for a long time, I avoided it. And then I thought, you know what, since this is a question I'm getting a lot from other fields, this is something that I really have to attack head on. Um, and that ended up my kind of uh, effort to grapple with that problem ended up transforming the, the shape of the manuscript. That's so interesting to hear about because there really is a point um, kind of late in the book where suddenly there's this aha moment for the reader, right? And you lead us through, and we'll get to this, the course of our conversation. So listeners, fear not. Um, we'll, we'll get to this point, but it really is um, just so elegantly worked into the argument when you do, you know, as a reader, reach this point where suddenly, okay, now we have the emergence of um, this kind of stigma attached to this work, but it's not because of the promiscuity issue, right? It has everything to do with these larger arguments about um, sort of economic and social development over time and how these uh, are contextualized in very particular ways. And so um, bravo, brava, actually, <laughs> because I think uh, the, the reworking clearly um, created a really elegant argument. So... So this is, as you mentioned, um, a book about prostitution. Uh, The book actually uses the prostitution or uses the history of prostitution as a lens through which to explore some major social and political and cultural changes in early modern Japan from uh, sort of the beginning and the Tokugawa shogunate's establishment of a status-based society, which has all kinds of implications for your story, all the way to the commercial boom at the end of the era. Now, we've said, or I've said, that prostitution Constitution is um, the lens through which we explore this. But first things first, what is prostitution in early modern Japan? So what is, <laughs> um, can you tell us a little bit about that? What is this category and how is this meaningful in the particular context that you're looking at? Right. So prostitution turns out to be very difficult to define because if you just define it as um, 
selling sex, you get into all sorts of um, problems about, well, what if a woman has sex with a man and then receives a gift? And that was very common, for example, in the medieval economy. Or what about, you know, as some radical feminist theorists once opined, you know, is marriage, in fact, a form of prostitution if a woman receives the benefits of a man's labor because she's entered into a sexual relationship with him? Um, and then there is the question of, is prostitution really a coherent category at all? Um, and some people have said that, you know, women who call themselves prostitutes or are called prostitutes are actually engaged in a variety of different types of labor, and they don't really have much in common with each other. So one of my um, problems in reconceptualizing the manuscript was how am I going to define prostitution and who counts as a prostitute? Um, so... What I came up with was the idea that prostitution was the exchange of sex or sexual services in general, because, of course, sex encompasses a wide variety of activities um, for cash payment. Um, and that that cash payment could be for a woman individually. That is, she could receive the cash payment or more likely um, cash payment of her relatives or um a brothel keeper, and that it was commonly understood as a business, um, and that a woman would then exchange sex with multiple men, either serially or, um, you know, every few hours or every night, didn't matter. Um, and then... After that, though, I had to contend with the idea that there were many women in Tokugawa, Japan, who fit this description. Um, and I think they were all considered generally baijo, which is the two care or baita in slang terms, um, which is the characters for selling and women. So there are women who sold sex. Um, and that element of exchange was really important in being designated a prostitute. It wasn't just about having sex with a lot of men. There had to be a monetary component to it. Um, but then there were women who were called yujo, who were usually legally designated prostitutes, but sometimes weren't. Um, there were women who were yotaka, kind of, you know, street walkers. Um, and there were as many names. And then there were euphemistic names like meshimoriona, mule-serving woman. Um, and then I had to decide, did all those women belong within the same category, occupational category of prostitution? Um, and I decided that they did. And... That was both because people at the time would call any one of these women a baijo, a selling woman, and also because they were often the same women or later in their careers, so that someone who started out as a yujo, a high-class prostitute in the so-called pleasure quarter of Yoshiwara, could then end up as a goke, a widow, um, selling sex as an independent operator in Niigata. Um, and so this was a profession in which there was kind of a, a life cycle um, and so I decided that, yes, this is a coherent category, and further that I was going to call it rather than um, sex work, which is another very commonly used um, designation. Great. And you mentioned also in the book um, briefly, so I just want to give you a chance to talk about that a little bit now, the issue of men. And so listeners who may not yet have had the chance to read the book may be thinking, um, well, what about male prostitution? Was that um, an issue? Does that figure into your story? And you, and you give a very um, compelling and very detailed explanation of why you're not talking about that um, in the book. But I'd, I'd love to give you an opportunity now to just explain that a little bit. For listeners. Right. Well, male prostitution is something 
something that's definitely worth talking about in general, um, and it definitely occurred in Tokugawa, Japan. Um, we know this from um, literary sources, guidebooks, um, and as Gregory Flugfelder's work has pointed out, there are you know, guides to the way of love with men, and then there are guides to the way of love with women. Um, and the way of love with men included visiting male prostitutes. Um, but I contend that male prostitution and female prostitution were not considered two varieties, the same big phenomenon called prostitution. Um, they were really completely separate, both in terms of the way the business was organized and the way that um, authorities and also commoners thought about it. Um, and so, first of all, with the, um, the business itself, the business of male prostitution was closely associated with the theater world, with kabuki theater, and with young men who called themselves actors. Um, and it's true that where you see kabuki theater, you often also see male prostitution. Um, and that includes big cities and also um, smaller places, like one of the sites I mentioned briefly, Kompira in Shikoku, which had a very important regional um, kabuki scene. Um, However, the business of male prostitution um, tended to decline over the course of the Tokugawa period for um, reasons that Gregory Flugfelder talks about in his book, um, whereas the business of female prostitution, first of all, it had a much wider geographical scope, um, so you could find it in, for example, post stations and really small port towns, um, as well as big cities and in places where there was no theater scene per se, um, and it also expanded really dramatically over the course of the period. And furthermore, there's a difference in the way that authorities talked about male prostitution and female prostitution. Um, they generally considered the latter to be much more problematic. Um, and in fact, when they talk about illegal prostitution, they are much more interested in sanctioning women who sell sex outside you know, the officially designated frameworks than they are in sanctioning men. Um, so that was my justification for treating them separately. But I really think that it is a topic that's worth pursuing. And I would love to read a book about it if someone out there wants to write one. Great. Thank you. Now, you, you've already mentioned um, briefly uh, at the beginning of our conversation that there's this kind of the, the case study that you're looking at really undermines um, this uh, assumption about prostitution being sort of universally stigmatized in all uh, times and places. And so um, we've already talked a little bit about that. But one of the things that you emphasize early in the book is that prostitution is a business, right? In some ways, this is very much going to be an, an economic story about history. Now, what I want to move to a little bit now is one of the most fascinating, for me as a historian, um, aspects of the of the book, and there are many of them, and that's the the use of sources um, and your use of documents in here. It's it, we'll get to this when we look um, at later chapters, but there's so many really fascinating contracts and diaries and scraps of paper recording uh, interviews and things that you um, I think gift us with in the in the book. They're fascinating to read about. But more generally, um, can you talk a little bit about the kinds of the kind of research that you had to do in order to get a sense of the economic impact of something like prostitution, which is, as you just mentioned, it's about sort of measuring a geographic scope, right? And it's about sort of getting a sense of the spread over space and number of women employed. Um, so, how were you? 
able to do that with the kinds of source base that you had? And was this a kind of question that emerged out of sources that you were getting interested in anyway? Or did you have to do any kind of special digging to try to get a sense of how to measure this in economic terms? Yes, there is a lot of um, special digging. <laughs> um, I didn't realize at first that I was writing um, an economic story. Um, what I was really interested in, in was looking at prostitution outside the pleasure quarter in Edo, the famous one, Yoshiwara. And it ended up that I put Yoshiwara in the book. But when I first did it as a dissertation, my idea was to look at prostitution everywhere else except for in Yoshiwara um, because... The sources, uh, the secondary literature that I read, which was really, as I said, focused on cultural history, um, looked at the so-called pleasure quarter as a site of cultural production, um, and often depicted it as this kind of separate world, um, remote from everyday life, a place of fantasy and fulfillment. And this is really brought home to me when I read um, in a textbook um, that said, well, you know, there are lots of different types of prostitution in Tokugawa, Japan, but the quality of the women varied. And I thought, wow, that is really um, revealing. Because first of all, it perfectly expresses the commodification of women in the sex trade. And second, it values the women in terms of, you know, not only how much men would pay for them, but in terms of the cultural production that they inspired. And so really kind of um, prominent yujo, these women who are extremely sought after and quite famous, um, were much more culturally important than the women who are, you know, just hanging out in harbor towns or, you know, selling, saying they're selling vegetables, but actually selling sex. Um, and so my idea at first had been to go around and just look at all these different places where sex was being sold that were not designated pleasure quarters. Um, and then, though, as I started looking, I realized, first of all, that these women are very much integrated into everyday life in the places where they're working, um, that people don't think of them as a species apart, or they don't think of the places where they work as these kind of distant and fantastic realms, um, but, you know, just the brothel down the street. Um, and I also found that they were really economically important um, in these smaller places where they were working. So one of my sites is a place where at one point, 30 percent of the population of this very small harbor town consisted of prostitutes. Um, and it was so important to the town's economy that even when a brothel keeper did something wrong, they, the officials in charge decided they couldn't shut down the brothel because it would have an adverse impact on the town itself. Um, so I had that kind of um, impressionistic evidence of brothels' economic importance, um, and trying to put numbers on it was really, really difficult um, because people had all sorts of um, motives to incentives to falsify their numbers. Brothel keepers did not want to admit how many prostitutes they employed or how much they made because. In many cases, brothels were taxed on that basis. Um, and so there's all sorts of double bookkeeping going on. Um, and so a lot of the times, if you can count, you know, a thousand prostitutes in a post station, you don't know whether there are a thousand prostitutes or 1,500 prostitutes or 5,000 prostitutes. Um, and so the numbers part was very difficult. Um, and I just tried to look at as many different types of sources as possible. Um, and that led to digging in some unusual places. 
Now, one of the before I um, I sort of ask you more specific questions about the chapters. One of the things that was really striking to me um, was your use of, or your mentioning of Joan Scott's work early in the book. Right, you you mention in particular her words in the intro: "Politics constructs gender, and gender constructs politics." And this is something that's very much um, recurs as a theme throughout the study. Now, Scott's work also comes up later on. So what I wanted to ask you is, um, Scott's work is clearly influential in the way you've been thinking about this book. Are there other scholars or, or are there other kind of people working on either this topic or related topics or nothing having to do with this topic who were especially formative or whose work was especially formative in the way that you conceived and, and wrote the project? Um you know, I came to the realization that Scott's work was important surprisingly late in the process, um, which is interesting because often historians of women and gender, they go to Joan Scott first um, because she's been so influential. Um, and it was really only as I was rewriting and thinking about the Tokugawa status system as a gendered order um, that that came to mind. Um, and I have to actually credit my colleague, Melissa McCauley there in Chinese history, who said, you know, you're really talking about the same thing that Joan Scott's talking about. Um, the other scholars who've been really um, influential are other people working on prostitution in other areas of the world. Um, of course, Judith Walkowitz, although my approach is really not very much like hers. Um, and particularly Louise White, who worked on prostitution in Nairobi. Um, she really was one of the first people to address um, prostitution as an economic activity, um, not as promiscuity, but as um, an a, a business in which the exchange of money was really important. Um, my work differs from hers in a few different ways, but um, that was very influential, as was um, reading Ruth Mazo Karras's book about um, prostitution in medieval Europe, because she found that what defined a prostitute was sexual behavior, um, and that any woman who was kind of out of the control of a man who had sex on her own terms or had a lot of sex with different men could be considered a prostitute whether or not she was exchanging money. Um, and I thought, wow, the situation in Tokugawa, Japan is just completely different from that. Um, and so it was influential in helping me think through it, think it through in that way too. Great. Thank you. So now let's actually get into the get, get into the main event. Um, the book is set up in a series of two parts, and each one of these parts deals with a somewhat different um, set of issues, although it's related and there's clearly a progression, and includes a, a series of case studies or local studies uh, embodied in the chapters within the part. So part one um, of the book concentrates on the first two centuries of Tokugawa rule, and this is about regulation and the logic of the household. This is one of the major arguments arguments here is that the Tokugawa system transformed women from property held by their household heads into female subjects of the state. And this is crucial, and we'll sort of see in the other um, end of the book how this starts um, kind of coming apart and what the consequences are for women, for prostitution, for the way we understand um, the relationship of these of these things. Now, the first chapter um, in, this, uh, in this part one opens in one of the many really fascinating localities that you give us here, and this is a mining town of Ine Ginzan, a city in the early 17th century. Can you describe for our listeners of what's important about this town and just kind of set the stage for us? Where are we here when we're in this story in Ine Ginzan? 
Um, so Ina is a mining town um, in the very wild um, northeastern part of Japan in what is now Akita Prefecture. Um, it was a frontier of sorts. Um, they had only struck silver there um, just at the very, very beginning of the Tokugawa period. Um, and because... Um, this was an era of castle town building, of kind of fortification, um, of kind of setting up a new political order. That silver became very important um, in paying for all this new construction. And so this silver town, which is really in the middle of nowhere um, in the mountains, in a place that was still really plagued by bandits, um, hadn't really fully been pacified, um, grew really quickly in the early 17th century. Um, and it attracted people from all over the realm. Um, there are people there from just kind of these very far-flung corners of Japan, all kind of attracted by the promise of money um, during the silver boom. And there's this really interesting administrator, um, a samurai who's dispatched there by the domain government to kind of um, keep a lid on things, try to keep some sort of social order because it was a very chaotic place, but mostly keep the money flowing out of the mine. And um, this man, Umezu Masakage, um, very helpfully wrote a diary, um, and this has become a really important source um, for people who are studying all kinds of things about the very early Tokugawa period. Um, one of the things that I liked about Ina Ginzan, other than the fact that this diary was just there waiting to be read, um, was that it wasn't a castle town. Um, and a lot of the time we think about the early Tokugawa period as an age of castle towns um, in which the lords are building castles and attracting all sorts of um, construction workers and samurai and, um, you know, creating these new cities. It's an era of urbanization. And that's true, definitely. But I see the mining town kind of as like the castle town's dark side. It's kind of evil sibling. Um, because in order for a castle town to be established, there has to be a flow of revenue. Um, and mining towns were really important for that. And they kind of formed an alternative urban site um, in early Tokugawa Japan. And so I was interested in the diary, in the idea that there are other kinds of cities in early Tokugawa Japan, and in the fact that what I found in this diary um, was not at all what I'd expected um, to see in the first years of the Tokugawa period, where you see you're expecting to see more and more order, a movement toward order and, you know, containment of prostitutes and putting together of status categories and, you know, making sure that people um, follow the law. Um, and instead, what I found was more or less chaos. Um, but it was a chaos that had, well, it actually did have a logic to it. Um, and the logic was just make as much money for the domain as possible. Um, and so even though it didn't look like what I expected in that it wasn't very orderly and status-based, um, that was an aspect to official policy in the Tokugawa period that actually carried all the way through. Um, shogunal officials and domain officials, samurai of all kinds, were really interested in how much money they could make um, from the sex trade in addition to the regulation of the sex trade. And the balance of what their priority was um, changed over time. 
Great. Thank you. And I was actually going to ask you about this diary. So I'm so glad that so glad <laughs> you're talking about it. Now, one of the things that's so interesting that emerges out of this diary in this chapter is the story of the case of this woman, Kokane. Am I pronouncing her name? Yes. Okay. So Kokane, um, who by the end of the story is forced to parade around the mine, holding the head of the accomplice who initially helped her run away. So it's this really striking story. One, the, the, one of the notable things about her, though, and the reason um, why she's so uh, important to this chapter is that she's simultaneously a wife and a prostitute. And this um, gets us to a question um, about, uh, it's one of the um, really interesting things that came up for me when reading this. Um, and it's another way um, of the many ways that I think your book really encourages us to rethink some basic categories that we might take for granted. And in this case, Kokane and this larger context she's embedded in asks us to rethink how we understand what a wife is. So what in this context, um, if you would talk a little bit about what was marriage um, in this context and, um, and how was that important to the way the story plays out? Well, that is um, a really difficult question because marriage was not clearly defined. Um, you don't have a central authority, say the church, telling you that these people are married and these people are not. Um, and so the diary uses kind of consistent language to talk about women who are um, married, their suma, their wives, and um, their husbands, who are usually called their kind of true men, um, not their not their masters, their shujin, um, but their their real men, and then their um, their lovers, if they commit adultery, are called their maotoko, their in between men, um, and there's a really rich literature. Um, about the, def the changing definition of marriage and the kind of contingent definition of marriage in the medieval period that Hitomi Tonomura has done work on. Um, and what I found in um, Inai, in the case of Inai, is that um, at least the way Umezu Masakage, the official def defined marriage, it was a situation in which the wife was obligated to remain monogamous, but not entitled to. So she could not, for example, commit adultery with another man if she was married. But on the other hand, if her husband required her to go work in a brothel or he wanted to sell her to other men, um, she was not able to, she had no recourse. Uh, so that's why I say she's obligated to be monogamous, but not necessarily entitled. Um, however, from reading into the um, diary and looking at what the women said when they brought complaints to Mezu Masakage about their husbands, it seemed to me that the women were trying to argue something different, and that was that because they were married, they were both obligated and entitled to remain monogamous, and that a man, a husband who rented them out to other men for sex or kind of, you know, sold them to a brothel or, you know, even indentured them to another man for an unspecified period of time, that those husbands had lost their marital claim. And so I think of this as a, as a place in a time when the idea of marriage is being kind of negotiated between the people involved in it, the women involved in it, and the magistrate. Great. Now, from this really fascinating case study and this very particular um, locality, we move in the next two chapters to very different sorts of locality, and these are major shogunal cities of Edo and Nagasaki. Now, chapters two and three concentrate on these major urban centers and show how the Tokugawa legal order, when sort of at its prime, actually separated prostitutes from other kinds of women, but at the same time, that separation gave prostitutes a platform 
platform to kind of agitate for benevolence and agitate on their own behalf for certain kinds of protections. Um, now, chapter two looks at Edo, the capital city, and this gets us to uh, this this space I think that you mentioned early um, in our conversation. This was the um, emergence, which is a really, really interesting case study here, the emergence of a new kind of urban space that was actually devoted to um, sort of setting off a special space for prostitution, right, for sex work. Can you talk about this, um, this phenomenon here and this sort of carving out of a new space and a separate space for sex work and how that was involved with um, or involved in uh, really kind of an emerging category of prostitution itself. Right. So um, the idea that prostitution should be restricted to one quarter and that prostitution outside of that quarter um, is illegal was something that actually had been developed um, during the time of Hideyoshi. So really before the Tokugawa shogunate, Hideyoshi had um, conducted that experiment in the city of Kyoto. Um, and then in Edo, which is the shogunal capital, during the beginning of the Tokugawa period, um, there is a similar space um, designated for prostitution, Yoshiwara, um, and it's walled in. And prostitution outside of that quarter is deemed illegal. Um, now, what I think is really interesting about this and, and worth highlighting is the fact that this is not a case of the shogunate imposing this on the commoner population. Um, this is a case of brothel keepers themselves wanting to have a monopoly. So brothel keepers in one area proposed this to the shogunate um, and, in fact, were initially rejected and then proposed it again um, because they thought that it would be good for their business. Um, they wanted official protection, um, so they, they had a little cartel. Um, and so I see that as this kind of the designated space of the so-called pleasure quarter, yukaku is what it's called at the time. And um, again, I don't like to call it a pleasure quarter because it's not a space of pleasure for the women who work there. Um, but in any case, um, it is the result of a kind of um, convergence of interests between the shogunate, which wants to limit the kind of violence and social disorder that can be associated with prostitution, and which always has an interest in organizing urban space based on occupation, and the interests of brothel keepers themselves, or at least brothel keepers who are in this exclusive group. Um, but I don't think that that um, logic really survives very long. Um, and so what I trace in the Edo chapter is a kind of policy of containment, which I just talked about, and how that changed to a policy of um, designating prostitutes based on their status and not necessarily their their residence inside or outside the um, designated quarter. Um, and what I think is really crucial there is the institution of the contract, mm -hmm. um, the indenture contract. So that basically what ends up happening is there's prostitution all over Edo, not just in Yoshiwara. Um, and that brothel keepers in Yoshiwara pretty soon figure out that actually their monopoly is not that important. Um, what's really important is having access to this really wide network of procurers um, who and other brothel keepers in other areas and that they can expand their influence um, much better if they're not limited to one particular space. Um, and we see all sorts of examples of um, 
brothel keepers inside Yoshiwara having very close relationships or even being the same people as brothel keepers outside Yoshiwara. But what they want and what the shogunate also wants is to make sure that all the women working in prostitution are held to indenture contracts um, so that they are not supporting themselves um, like a streetwalker on the street, just getting money for selling sex, um, but working to support their parents ideally, um, and that the brothel keeper ultimately reaps the benefits of their labor. Um, this creates a situation in which women are indentured and they don't necessarily see the proceeds of their labor. Um, but it also gives the shogunate and the brothel keepers a chance to argue that what they are doing furthers the cause of benevolent government because it's allowing poor families and a way of making a living um, by indenturing daughters. It's allowing good daughters a chance to serve their households. Um, and it is allowing poor townspeople who are often brothel keepers um, a way to make a living and also to kind of inject some economic vitality into districts that might be failing. I, that was such a, fa a fascinating chapter and such a great part of the argument because you really do see this kind of very surprising very surprising transformation where um, the space goes from the space of land to the space of the contract and this emergence of this notion of prostitutes as filial daughters. I just, it, it works so well in the chapter. And you give us in the next chapter this other case, which is also a major urban center, but this is the case of Nagasaki. And this is actually really interestingly different because here the story focuses on prostitutes who are in relationships with foreign men, especially Chinese and Dutch men. And this also is an occasion for us to sort of rethink what marriage might mean in this context. So can you talk a little bit about how about this kind of context? So how do things change when we move to Nagasaki and suddenly it's prostitutes with foreign men? <laughs> right. Um, so that is what people have really um, concentrated on about Nagasaki. Um, it's the city from which the shogunate conducts its foreign relations um, and Dutch traders, although they're not all Dutch, some of them are other Europeans um, on Dutch ships. Um, there are actually other Asians on Dutch ships as well. They are restricted to an island called Dejima in Nagasaki Harbor. Um, and they are not allowed to leave except for under intense supervision. But, uh, and they're also not allowed to bring their wives with them. They're not allowed to kind of establish a permanent settlement. But um, apparently the shogunate thought it would just be going a step too far to deny them the um, opportunity to have sex with women. And so the shogunate allowed them to be visited by Yujo, by um, legal prostitutes from the districts of Maruyama and Yoriai, which are the kind of um, quarter that's set aside for prostitution in Nagasaki. Um, and similarly, Chinese traders, although they're not um, subject to as many restrictions, um, are obliged to live in a space called the Tojin Yashiki, um, which is a, a separate place set apart. And um, the brothel keepers in Maruyama and Yoriai um, have a system in which they designate which prostitutes will be sent to Dejima and which prostitutes will be sent to the Tojin Yashiki to um, engage in sexual relations with the um, Chinese traders. And um, people have often looked at this as um, kind of an interracial and intercultural transnational encounter um, in Tokugawa, Japan. And I think that part of it is really fascinating. And there are stories about women involved in smuggling and also women who um, end up 
wanting to form very long-term relationships with men who live in, um, for example, the Tojin Yashikis, it's more common, the Chinese men who have come to live in Nagasaki. And so um, what happens is they are designated prostitutes and they live there um, sometimes for up to 10 years um, with one man. So they're essentially monogamous and yet they are designated as prostitutes because if they did not have that status designation, they would not be able to live there. Um, and yet everybody realizes that this is a complete fiction. Um, also, women who are sent as wet nurses into, for example, Dejima to take care of babies born to prostitutes who are living with um, Dutch traders, they also have to be designated as prostitutes, even though they're actually wet nurses. Um, so it's, it's an example of how status is malleable. Um, but it also, um, the part of it that really appealed to me um, is that there is this criminal record in Nagasaki, the Nagasaki Hankacho, which deals with all different types of crime, but which often talks about prostitutes because they were so often involved in smuggling. For obvious reasons, they could go, come and go from these, these designated quarters, and they would you know, put ginseng under their hair and you know, put silk under their kimonos, and they had all sorts of ingenious ways of, um, of smuggling. And, but what was interesting to me about what these records revealed um, was how close these women remained to their families, um, their natal families who resided always because of the way the system was set up in other areas in Nagasaki, so geographically close by. Um, and so one of the things I looked at is how women um, were filial daughters or behaved as filial daughters or had their parents um, say that they were filial daughters and that this became a way for them to um, either resist the brothel keeper's authority or to transition out of prostitution and into marriage with a Japanese man. Great. Now this is, this set of case studies closes up the first part of the book and moves us to the part two of the book, which moves our, which also shifts our focus geographically to provincial ports, pilgrimage sites, and post stations in the late 18th and 19th centuries. And here we see a shift, or you, you I think, compellingly argue for a shift from a regulatory regime based on kind of logic of the household, I think you put, is the way you put it, um, to a regime based on the logic of the market. Okay. And one of the really striking things that we see here is ways or is a kind of set of ways that the geography of the story of prostitution really changes. There's really a transformation here. Um, and as you argue here, it's, it's related to a lot of things, but in part related to this kind of emergence of a, a new culture of travel. So can you talk for us a little bit um, about this new sort of shift in the geography of prostitution and, and the ways that prostitution is also shifting um, geographical uh, or shifting the geography of Tokugawa history here. Right. So um, in the late Tokugawa period, um, starting from probably the mid 18th century, um, you see really a huge increase um, in market activity. Um, It starts in the big cities and it it enters the countryside. And that means, you know, commercial agriculture. It also means proto-industrialization. So more peasants are receiving cash um, for their work and they are also um, more interested in spending that cash in all sorts of ways. Um, One of the ways they spend it is traveling. So you see people going on the road for pleasure as well as for work. Um, 
and they spend their cash, you know, buying books. So you see this boom in kind of rural people reading, um, and they're interested in, you know, poetry and plays, and they have all sorts of, you know, cultural activities that they're spending this new money on. Um, and one of them is prostitution. And so you see that um, along the post stations um, on the Shogun's highways through the realm, um, which are meant, well, were originally established for official travelers, that is to get people, you know, representatives of the Shogunate from Edo to the domains or domain representatives from the domains to Edo. Um, you see common people traveling those roads. And you also see that in order to cater to that population of commoners traveling the roads with disposable income, um, more and more inns start to become brothels. And they are they then find that, you know, when there's a brothel in a post station, um, that their most reliable customers are actually not travelers because travelers, you know, they come and go, um, but are actually the local men, um, particularly young men who live in post stations, who live in villages surrounding the post station, who will come into the post station to do corvée labor um, as porters um, for the shogunate and will then spend the nights in the station and spend their money um, with women. Um, so that's one way in which the ge geography of prostitution changes. Um, another is that you have um, increased sea transportation as well. And so port towns um, become really important sites of prostitution. And that includes big ports like Nikata, which is in my first chapter, and also little tiny ports in the inland sea like Mitarai, which is in my third chapter, um, which see people traveling through with, you know, big rice boats, but also, you know, little dinghies or people who are on pilgrimages through the Shikoku pilgrimage circuit will sail through there um, and often stop at Broadway. And so what we see is just an explosion of the sex trade into areas where there hadn't been much prostitution before. Great. Thank you so much. Now, in the course of these chapters, as we move um, through these various areas, one of the things that emerges really, really interestingly is a set of case studies also that function as kind of micro histories for the story that you're telling. And in addition to or along with this change in the kind of booming market culture that's transforming the geographies of prostitution, the social status and the kind of recourse and the sort of understanding of prostitutes as individuals, as subjects, also transforms. And sort of ironically, as you argue here, um, it, this discourse that may have been understood by other historians, other people, um, sort of commonly as this sort of liberation, right, as you go through to the end of this period with the rise of commercialization um, for women actually serves to not be so liberating for a lot of women um, in this story. Right, exactly. Um, so, would you t say a little bit um, about that? As because that that's actually a, um, it seems like a really important and really major part of what you're arguing in this section of the book. Right, it is. Um, so. Well, first I'll talk about um, the kind of the, what I what I found um, in terms of the, the status of women. Um, so as the, the geography of prostitution changes um, and more and more women get caught up in the business, um, recruiting networks kind of spread out across the archipelago. And one really important one, for example, is that women from Echigo, particular from, particularly from Kambara, the area around Niigata, um, 
end up in coast stations throughout the Kanto region, which is the region around Edo. Um, and so women are being trafficked further and further from home. And these are still indentured women. So their husbands are being, uh, I mean, that they're not their husbands, their families are being paid for their labor. Um, they don't necessarily see the proceeds of it. Um, and they don't really have any say in where they end up. And they end up very far from their families. And they end up in communities where the meaning of their work is different than it would be for their community at home. So, for example, um, people in Echigo might think of prostitutes as filial daughters, right, because their labor is saving their family from defaulting um, on their loans and from having to become, quote unquote, broken peasants, leaving the land. So in that sense, those daughters might be thought of as heroines of a sort. But when they get to the Kanto region and they're working in a post station, the peasants around there don't think of the same women in the same way. Um, what they see is that young men are um, spending all their money on prostitution and sometimes leaving their wives for um, these serving girls in post stations. And they really see the serving girls um, not as the saviors of households, but as the destroyers of households and representatives of this kind of alien market-driven culture um, that is destroying um patterns of life in the countryside. And this is a particularly galling for village elders, for village headmen um, who have patriarchal authority over their households and their villages um, to see that young men are more and more difficult to control um, and to see young women who these prostitutes are you know, very visible in the post stations um, engaging with the market um, in very obvious and gaudy and disturbing ways. Um, and they start to think that maybe all, you know, these relationships of reciprocity and benevolence and hierarchy are going to be replaced by market transactions. Prostitution seems to them to be the harbinger of that future. Um, and so they no longer think about prostitutes as filial daughters because they're outsiders and because they represent this kind of destruction of the household. Um, so that was the change that I saw. But then to go ahead and think about it from the perspective of the women who are working in the business. Um, these are women who sometimes, um, you know, they don't all have the same experience. So sometimes a woman, for example, will be trafficked from Echigo, end up in a Kanto post station, get bought out of prostitution, end up being a peasant woman in a slightly better situation than the one she started out in. And so prostitution is a form of, of social mobility for them. Um, but for others, once they ended up in these places that were far from home, they didn't have much recourse. Um, if, say, a brothel keeper abused them, they couldn't um, use their status as filial daughters as a platform from which to appeal to local authorities. Kind of um, moral leg to stand on. Um, and so for these women, I think that the emergence of this kind of culture of consumption um, and mark you know, kind of market-driven activity um, was not at all liberating. And when we think about um, the late Tokugawa period as a time of, you know, commoners spending more and more money in consumer culture, and we assume that this is um, a type of freedom that, you know, the culture of play is, uh, is, is first of all, play, and secondly, liberation, um, I think we're overlooking that experience and, and really making assumptions that all commoners benefit in the same way or experience this change in the same way, when in fact there are serious differences based on social class and gender and age. In fact, one of the points that you make, I think, very elegantly in this, um, in the last chapter of the book, or rather the last body chapter, the uh, sixth chapter, 
is that you, you make a point that the attention paid to the freedom of prostitutes and to their will in this period, this later period, actually has what might seem to be a paradoxical effect. They were actually most empowered when they were not asserting their agency. And this the micro-historical account that you give us in this chapter um, to kind of demonstrate this and take us through this process is this really wonderful account of a prostitute named Tora and uh, um, her kind of story in this context. So as the penultimate thing that I, that I want to ask you about in the time that we have left, can you, for listeners, um, introduce Tora for us and sort of who was she and why was she so important in helping you argue um, for these changes in this chapter? Yes. So um, when I said earlier in the interview that I had to um, grapple with the issue of stigmatization, um, I realized that it wasn't the case, especially late in the Tokugawa period, that prostitutes weren't stigmatized because they were. But it seemed to me that the reason that prostitutes um, were looked down upon or kind of denigrated was not because they had sex with multiple men, but because they were engaging in the market economy and seemed to be women outside the household who were um, replacing marriage and traditional bonds of um, kind of filiality with kind of cold hard cash. Um, now this is not true. I say seems to because these after all were indentured women. So it's quite paradoxical, but the, the idea of women making choices was something that was used against prostitutes, um, in order to cut off some of their avenues for appeal as filial daughters. Um, and Torah was a good example of this. Um, the documents about Torah, it's a village register, um, from this little tiny port of Mitarai in the middle of the Inland Sea. Um, it's, I, it's interesting how I found the documents um, with the help of a Japanese scholar, but um, in this, this place, you, I mean, it's the typical archival story of I had to take a boat to get there and there was nothing there, you know. Um, but <laughs> anyway, um, so there are a lot of documents um, in, the, in the town register, the village register, about... Um, about prostitution, because this is the place where prostitution is so important to the local economy. Um, and the story of Tora was something that a local archivist, um, Satoka Katoshi, um, Satoshi had, um, had been working on. And um, so I started looking through those. And it's the story of this girl named Tora, or as the brothel keeper called her, Koeda, um, who had been sold into, well, indentured into prostitution by her parents, who lived in a different port town. Um, and then her sister, who was a prostitute in yet another port town, um, came to visit the brothel and said, our mother is dying. You have to come back and see her. Um, she brought Tora home. And then Tora never came back. And this inaugurated this huge conflict between the brothel and the parents, which took um, over a year to get sorted out. Basically, Tora's parents' side of the story is that the second son of the brothel keeper, Sobe, had been having inappropriate sexual relations with her, um, that she was too young for this, she was only 15, um, and that um, this had broken their agreement with the brothel keeper, and therefore she was under no further obligation. Um, this is kind of ironic, considering that, after all, these are the same parents who had indentured her to a brothel. Um, and it turns out that while they had her in custody, um, they were, in fact, selling her to other people and then trying to indenture her to a different brothel elsewhere. Um, and it turns out that um, 
The brothel keeper, I argue, is the victor in this dispute because Tora gets returned to the brothel. Um, the condition is that she marries the second son, who is the one who had been inappropriately having sexual relations with her. Um, and it's um, the way that the brothel keeper gets her back. Well, first of all, they send a bunch of outcasts to kidnap her, which is another interesting part of the story. Um, but the way that um, this proceeds in um, mediation with a different set of village officials is that um, Tora is encouraged to take responsibility for her actions. She is at this point um, in the custody of these threatening gangster-like outcasts um, who are really, I think, controlling her testimony. And what she says is she says, it's all my fault. Um, I was the one who, you know, forced myself on Sobe, um, the second son. And, um, you know, this is, it was because of my wickedness that this occurred and I feel terrible about it. Um, and the village officials who are sent in to be mediators um, take this at face value and they say she's a wicked sort. Um, because she, you know, was a lustful woman, um, and they accept that she is responsible, and they return her to the brothel keeper um, under the condition that she marries the second son. And so, to me, it was this kind of replacement of the narrative of the filial daughter who has no will of her own but just works to preserve her household, with a narrative about a wicked and, in this case, lustful woman who's looking out for her own advantage. <laughs> Right. Now, now this is um, this also gets us to the last thing that I want to ask you before we wrap up and and kind of look to um, look to the future. Now, this is something that you brought up at the very beginning of the book is something that I want to kind of close at least this part of the our conversation with because it speaks to this issue of um, dealing with Torah as a as a character, as a figure, as a voice. You mentioned early in the book the issue of capturing or representing the voices of the prostitutes themselves. Can you talk a little bit about um, the challenges of doing that in the context of this work and about how that issue um, may have informed the way you approach this topic and may have informed your work in the book? Right. Um, so traditionally, that's been a preoccupation of women's history. It's trying to kind of recapture the voices of women. Um, but it is a very problematic endeavor um, because these so-called voices are never um, unmediated. And Gail Hershatter has done really great work on that in the case of um, Chinese prostitution. Um, and we actually don't hear Torah speak except for the record of her testimony, um, which is really kind of dubious, first of all, because um, the person who kept the record is a mysterious person who seems to be a partisan of the, the brothel keeper, um, but also because her testimony might have been heavily influenced by the gangsters who had her in custody at the time. Um, and the other instance of a, a prostitute whose quote-unquote voice we hear is a woman named Tatsu, um, who's a Beshimori serving girl at a station along the... Um, um, who's in, which is in now in Gunma Prefecture. So, um, and she wrote a petition to the authorities asking to be released from her contract because her parents, uh, because her brothel keeper was viciously beating her. Um, and this is definitely, you know, this is her voice, um, and she's certainly asserting herself in a way that we might, you know, celebrate. But it is a very problematic form of self-assertion because the only reason she is pro she is writing her own petition is because there is no one to speak for her. Um, she's far away from her parents, and she even mentions, my father can't do this for me because he's back in Echigo province. Um, and so I, I kind of think that... Um, 
I mean, recovering voices is interesting, but I think it's ultimately, it's not really possible. Um, you can't get a transparent um, idea of what these voices were like. And also, when you see what looks like a really empowering assertion of agency and raising of one's voice, it actually ends up being an act of desperation. Um, and that's why I said that um, women were often most empowered when they were not speaking for themselves, but relying on parents to speak for them because the parents could more effectively deploy the filial daughter trope. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, Amy, we there's so much more we could talk about in the context of this book, but unfortunately, um, I don't want to keep you for another five hours. <laughs> well, I'd love to, but you know, people need to have dinner and that sort of thing. Right. So is there anything um, about the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention, especially for listeners who may not yet have had the opportunity to read it? Um, I think that just about um, covers it, really. Okay. Uh, well, there's, I will say for listeners too, there's in addition to these larger issues that we talked about, there are very, very elegantly and clearly worked out um, dis- arguments and discussions in here about space, about the relationship of um, sort of ma- market values and social values. There are lots and lots of stories and lots and lots of accounts that emerge out of these documents that you have that are that make for really, really excellent reading. So congratulations. And now that this book is out, what's occupying <laughs> you? What's next for you? What's inspiring you right now in terms of your next project or what you're thinking about? Um, well, like a lot of people at this stage, I'm kind of caught between two different things. Um, one is a history of Kyoto during the Meiji Restoration. Um, from so from about 1860 to 1880, um, from the perspective of townspeople who lived through the violence of the restoration and then kind of rebuilt the city because the emperor moved in 1868 um, to be very modern and enlightened. So it's the kind of story of Japanese enlightenment that is not based on Tokyo, which everybody expects, but based on Kyoto, um, and which starts earlier um, in the Tokugawa period. And the other, which is really more in line with this project, um, is a microhistory. It's about a woman named Tsuneno from a little village in Echigo province. She's the daughter of a temple. Um, She gets married twice. She gets divorced twice. She runs away to Edo. She falls into the gangster. Um, She gets married again, um, gets divorced again, gets married again to a samurai who's in the service of a very famous Edo city magistrate named Toyama Kinshiro. And it is kind of a project of retracing her life and the changing nature of the Tokugawa household through the letters that she exchanged with her parents. Well, they both sound great. And we'll definitely um, check back in once once those are out. And um, thank you so much, though, in the meantime, for taking the time and for giving us such a great book. Thanks so much. Oh, great. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks so much for being with us today, and we'll see you again next time.